Okay, last time we were finishing up the book of 1 Samuel chapter 3, 1 Samuel chapter 3, where Samuel had gotten his first revelation from the Lord spoke actually to Samuel and confirmed, just reconfirmed what the prophecy to Eli was from chapter 2. There was a man of God that came in chapter 2, gave him a prophecy that he was going to destroy you know, his family line from the priesthood. And this was reconfirmed to Samuel. And Eli, in the end of chapter 3, tells Samuel, Samuel had no intention first of telling Eli what went on. He just went about his business. I mean, it must have been frightening to the poor kid to hear about the destruction of the family line of this man that he loved so much. But then Eli comes to him in in chapter 3, verse 16, and he says to Samuel, Samuel, my son, And he said, Here I am. And he said, What is the word that he spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me of all the words that he spoke to you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. So in other words, when he told Samuel... If you don't tell me everything, may the Lord do whatever God told you about me, may He do it to you and more. Right away, Samuel said, oh, you got my attention. He told him everything. Everything that the Lord said. Then it said, uh, Samuel grew and his word was confirmed that he was the prophet of Israel. So sometime later, we don't know how many years later, Now, a lot of the prophecy, some of the prophecy is going to be fulfilled. One of the prophecies that had come in chapter 2 was that uh, Eli's two sons were going to die on the same day. There was never any any word in the prophecy about what would happen to the ark. Uh, But let's read on and see what happens. So, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. Thus the Lord, the, the word of the, thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped between Ebenezer while the Philistines camped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the people came into the camp, the elders of of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who sits above the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth resounded. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. 
And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Okay, so, chapter 4, it says that Samuel, the word of the Lord had come to Samuel, and he had been confirmed as a prophet. And Israel had known this. And yet they didn't ask him. Still, Eli was judge over Israel at this time. Uh, And it says later on in chapter 4 that Eli served as judge for 40 years. Even though because of his age, he may not have been the high priest in a formal sense anymore, he was still the judge of Israel. And it says that the Philistines gathered in in battle and camped and... and, uh, in battle, and camped beside Ebenezer, I'm sorry, Israel camped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines at, at Aphek. Now, this name, Ebenezer, was not the formal name given until, to this place until chapter 7 of 1 Samuel. That's formally when they named that place Ebenezer. But the writer of the book of Samuel is writing after this event, and he knows what the places eventually people are going to refer it to as. Let me give you an example. The first settlers... To the New World, they, they, they came to Plymouth Rock. They didn't say, let's go to Plymouth Rock and settle at Plymouth Rock. On the map, ah, there's Plymouth Rock. No, it became named Plymouth Rock after they had gotten there. And so, we say the first settlers went to Plymouth Rock. We're speaking in the sense that that is what it was later named, and that's where they went. It's in the same way that this was later named Ebenezer. This same place where the Philistines were, were, were gathering their camp, this Afek, this is, this is the same place in the same chapter uh, in, in, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 29, verse 1, where they had gathered to fight uh, again against Israel. So this was a common gathering place for the Philistines. And it says the Philistines drew up an array. In fact, by this time, Sam, uh, uh, Samson was probably dead because remember, Samuel's life overlapped with Samson's life. And Samson had kept the Philistines at bay, not in any controlled military sense, just by going and causing them a lot of trouble. And by this time he's dead, and the Philistines begin to expand. They had these, these expansion of this city-state sort of, uh, of uh, uh, rule where they would have uh, different kings of different cities within this state, and they were beginning to expand. It says they drew up and they killed 4,000 of the Israelites. So there was a battle, 4,000 of the Israelites died, but it was not a decisive battle. There were 4,000 that had died, but it didn't give them any more territory. That was just a single battle. It says in verse 3, when the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? And that is a good question. So the people came back and the elders said, why have we been defeated? You know, our God is supreme. Why have we been defeated? Which is a fair question. When things happen in our life, it's not wrong to do a self-examination. In fact, this is why I love the Lord's Supper, that each week I can do a self-examination before problems start arising. Because very often we have something and something happens to get our attention and we're like, whoa, you know, this is, uh, you, you know, something is going on here. You know, I'll, I'll give you an example from my own life in my own career. So, so you, you, you get an example here. And it, it's somewhat revealing, but, you know, the way we run our research programs is we go out and we beg money. 
we beg money from the federal government. Usually we write lots of grants and write lots of proposals. We send them in. Some portion of them get funded. Most of them don't, and you just become writing machine. You just set up a network with your group on how to write and, and how to send out proposal after proposal after proposal. Because, you, you know, there's people working in your labs, and you've got to buy them test tubes and things like that and chemicals and budget for them. And so that you get an idea, a typical graduate student costs me about $50,000 a year. By the time I pay their salary, which is like $23,000, their tuition, their indirect costs, their supplies, and then all of that, you, you have to take that, all of that workman's comp, and you multiply times 1.5 because that the, the, the university, whatever dollar you, would, for, to have a dollar in your, in, to spend, you have to bring in a dollar fifty. So they take one-third of whatever comes in. So, you know, and that's for the facilities, for the lights, for running the lab, for the heating, for the air conditioning, and all these things. And, and so that's understandable. But you have to maintain this. And there have been two occasions during my 20-plus year career where I've gotten somewhat cocky, and I've taken this for granted, and I've just, you know, just judged in my heart, never verbally, other professors that weren't bringing in enough money and weren't succeeding in, in getting grant money. And when professors aren't succeeding in getting grant money, you know, it becomes a whole drain on the whole department because they have these operations. They don't just fire all the students. They might start to release the postdocs, but the university comes in and the department comes in and starts to bail it out and let it wind down. And it, so anyway, what would happen is my grants would start drying up. I would start writing proposals and they're not funded. Or I'd start treating somebody as if they're not, you, you know, I'm too busy for you. I've got too much going on, don't you see? And then all of a sudden, my lifeblood starts to get cut off, the grant money. And I'm scurrying and scurrying and writing more and writing. And you work very hard putting together a proposal. I mean, hour after hour, writing these things. Not funded. And it's not like, oh, could, could you please do it? No, it's not funded. And you've got to rewrite, resubmit. A lot of times it's one-year cycles. You've got to wait a year. And so you're trying to... Two occasions. The Bible says God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. It says pride goes before a fall. It says God hates a few things, and one of them is a haughty spirit. I mean, again and again, the scripture is full of it. And he gets my attention then. And I'm like, oh Lord, forgive me. For my haughty, cocky spirit. And I fall on my knees and cry out to him. And then proposals start getting funded. It's really quite amazing. Twice in my career this has happened. It is much better if we have a time of introspection. And we deal with these issues before... The grants start not getting funded. You see what I mean? But God in His graciousness says, I hate the ugliness of pride. We need to get His attention. And He gets my attention. But this is why I love the Lord's Supper where He can search my heart and I can deal with many issues. And I can do it without the Lord's Supper, but the Lord's Supper reminds me each week, examine yourself. They were examining themselves. There was a time of self-examination. They said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? 
And before they could hear an answer, they didn't go to Samuel and say, Why? Why? Samuel would say, you know, because you're rebelling, you're not obeying. They said, why has the Lord defeated us today? I know what we'll do. Let us take for ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that we may take it among us and deliver us from the power of the, the enemies. So they asked the question without waiting for an answer. This happens all the time in our lives. We'll ask a question. I think I know what we have to do to solve this. Without allowing you, without testing this thing, without coming before the Word of God and saying, Lord, speak to my heart. What's going on? So they asked the question, which is good. But they never allowed time for the answer. And they said, let's bring the ark with us into battle. Now, they were following a pattern from a time before the ark was settled in Shiloh. When they were in the wilderness, in Numbers chapter 10, verse 35 and 36, Moses said, let the ark go before us and let the enemies flee. This is when they were in the wilderness going. Joshua chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, before they had come into the land, they were just coming in, before there was a time settled, he brought the ark and he had it circle around, around Jericho, you know, with the priests. But this was, God had commanded this. So what they were doing was they were taking something from a time that was quite different and applying it to their time at their present time. God remains the same, but the precise methods in which He works with people changes. Changes with different dispensations, changes with different environments. There were two fundamental theological errors that they had made. The first was the omnipresence of God. Meaning that they thought that God was in that ark. And it never said God was in the ark. It says God dwelt above the ark. The ark was a sign or an icon that God was with them. Now they were using it as a good luck charm. So it's very different. You know, we can have an image, Lord, you gave yourself on the cross for me. But when we say, therefore, I will wear a physical cross and it will do me good now. Cross will take care of me. It does nothing. Then it becomes an idol. It becomes a good luck charm. And they fell victim to the same thing. To the exact same thing. Thinking they were going to bring in the ark. Now everybody would flee. Uh, so, there are numerous verses predating this. In Exodus 25-22, for example, where it says, God dwelt above the ark. And then in 2 Samuel 6-2, Psalm 80, verse 1, uh, Ezekiel 1, 4-28, and, and Psalm 99-1, again and again, God dwelt not in the ark, but God overlooked the ark. And then the omnipotence of God, that God would be with them. Throughout Israel's history, throughout Israel's history, if they obeyed and followed His will, they succeeded and they won in battle. If they disobeyed, and did not follow His will, they did not succeed in battle. And the exact same is the same today. Evangelical Christians, and I love Israel. I love Israel. My daughter lives there. Evangelical Christians think that Israel just ought to take the land because it was promised to them from the river of Egypt, which is the Nile, to the Euphrates, which is by Baghdad, just, just, just before you get to Iran. That whole thing is Israel's territory given by God. But they're not going to get it. 
unless they walk in obedience. And we know they're not going to get all of this until just near the end. But you see this throughout history. As there's obedience, they expand. Disobedience, their land contracts. It's just like a yo-yo. Expands and contracts based on obedience. It's very much like our own lives. As we obey, things, things in our life and our influence and our reach and our touching people expands. As we disobey, it doesn't. But faith, these people had real faith. They had faith that if we bring that ark into our midst, we will succeed. You see, they had faith. But faith without obedience and content does not succeed. And what happens in our Christian lives is we get a view that if I just have faith, I will succeed. But it doesn't have content and it doesn't necessarily have obedience. And then what happens when we don't succeed, we think Christianity is a sham. I really believed, and I prayed for this person, and I really believed, and I believe you do. You really did have faith, and they died. Really had faith, and they died. And then we think Christianity is just, just you know, it's nonsense. And we want to drift away. What happens is, we wrongly apply the Word of God just like they did. And so we're going to look at some scenarios like this, where this applies. So there, there's, there's clear teaching to us. There's clear teaching to us as New Testament believers in the, in the epistles of what we ought to be about. But we're always trying to grab things that it never says. It says in Hebrews 11.6 that without faith it is impossible to please Him. Whoever comes to God must believe that He is and that He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. So faith is an important aspect. Without faith you cannot please God. Well, he loves me because I'm a Christian. No doubt he loves you, but without faith you can't please him. How do you know? It says so. The Bible says without faith it is impossible to please God. Whoever comes to God must believe that he is. So to believe that God is, to believe that he exists, to not be an atheist is insufficient. Because it says whoever comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. We must believe that He has good for me if I seek Him. That is fundamental. That is what faith is. We must have that. But let's let's look at at something. Turn back to the book of Numbers. So just turn back a few books. You'll see Deuteronomy and then you'll hit Numbers. Another big book. Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. Let's see what an instance here. In Numbers chapter 21, the Israelites start rebelling against God and they start complaining against God and they say, God, you provided for us, but we hate this food in the wilderness. We're all upset. And and so let's read Numbers 21, verse 5. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and we loathe this miserable food. So they say there's no food and no water and we loathe this miserable food. Yeah, they had food, but it wasn't the food they wanted. Verse 6, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many of of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard and it it will come that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it 
he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Okay, so the people are getting bit by these serpents and dying, by these snakes and dying. So he tells Moses, when they say, please help us. Moses says, Father, what shall we do? He says, you set up a bronze serpent. You take, you have something fashioned, it's a snake on a, on a post, so that when people get bitten, if they look to that, they'll live. And that happens. And that's actually where we get our pharmacy symbol of a snake wrapping around a post. comes from this. Well, let's look in, in 2 Kings. So after 1 Samuel, you got 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, then 2 Kings. In 2 Kings chapter 18, it's the life of Hezekiah, a very godly king. Had a little bit of trouble in the end, but, but uh, quite godly king. And look at what God instructs him to do in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4. So, so it says, he meaning Hezekiah... 2 Kings 18, verse 4, He removed the high places and he broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it and it was called Nehushtan. So, and, and he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord, and he did not depart from following him, but he kept his commandment, and the Lord had, which the Lord had commanded Moses. So you see, Hezekiah saw that this serpent, which had lasted to this day in, in Hezekiah's time, became now a good luck charm and an idol, and they were even burning incense to it. So Hezekiah broke it down. Had it broken down. He says, I don't want this to become an idol. And God was in favor of that. What God had put there for their good had now become an idol for them. But interestingly, turn to John chapter 3 in the New Testament. Jesus makes reference to this. In John chapter 3. After all these years, thousands of years, Jesus is making reference to this now. John chapter 3, verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Jesus makes reference to this. He says as as they looked toward that serpent that was upon that standard in the wilderness and it saved them, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That which God meant for good for a certain generation couldn't be applied to another generation. So that which is proper for at one time can even become an idol at another time. Let me give you another example. In, you know, this thing of praying for people when they're sick, and we covered this not long ago in James chapter 5. In James chapter 5 it says, you pray for the sick and they will recover. It's not, maybe they'll recover or... I mean, James is absolutely convinced. But the context in James chapter 5 is... If anyone has sinned that has brought on this sickness, if they confess their sin and now you pray for them, the elders anoint them with oil and pray for them, they will be healed. That's a very specific context. It doesn't say whoever you pray for will be healed. Absolutely. Whoever the elders anoint with oil will be healed. Absolutely. If that were the case, 
let's take that and extrapolate that all the way. Let's just get the elders of the church to get some oil, go over to M.D. Anderson and pray for everybody in there and have them walking out. All the patients are happy. All the doctors are without work. And all the patients, I'm telling you, a good portion of them will come to Westview Baptist Church and be a part of us. Because they would just be so amazed. And then go over to Methodist Hospital and go over to St. Luke's to the cardiac care. Do the same thing. Well, why doesn't that work? Because the scriptures are very, very specific. If someone is sick as a result of sin, let them, let him call for the elders of the church. Let them anoint him with oil and pray in the name of the Lord. And if there is sin, it will be forgiven him and he will be healed. Very specific. In that case, where someone is, is, and we gave, when we went over James, there were different reasons for sicknesses. Many different reasons for sicknesses. One of the reasons was because of sin. In the instance of sin, if it had to do with a brother in the Lord, someone who knew the Lord, called for the elders of the church, very specific. But you see, what happens is, this is, this is a serious thing. And I don't want to you know, quench anybody's faith. I just want to say, in other areas of prayer, when we pray for people, God may or may not choose to heal them. But what happens is, is if you believe on this, that God is going to heal this person, and it's not in that particular kind of case where that sickness was brought on because of the direct result of sin, if you are believing that, if it comes through, great, it's straight strengthens your faith. But there will be another instance in your life where it won't come through. Because the older you get, the more people around you die. It's a fact of life. Because you hang out with older and older people and their bodies start to wear out. Because nobody lives forever. I mean, even Jesus died, but He was resurrected. It says it is given for all men to die once and then comes judgment. So everybody at some point has got to die. And so you think you could pray for somebody even if they're 116 and they're going to stay alive because you have faith. No, it's different. And the reason it's important to get a hold of this is or else you walk away and you say, Christianity is a big joke. No, it's because I've taken something that was never intended and I've used it in another application. Let me, let me go over another one which I haven't covered for several years because it's been a long time since we've been in the book of Acts. But that's tongues. You know, this whole thing about speaking in tongues. And, and uh, you know, it, it, it's really an interesting portion. If you turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This is, this is uh, on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, verse 3. It says, And there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So you see that they got tongues and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The first thing it says that they got... the, the, the um, So it, as if you read up above, there's this violent rushing wind and the Holy Spirit is moving in and it's coupled with them speaking in tongues. This is this first reference to these Jews speaking in tongues. But now you go to 
Same chapter, Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who had received his word were baptized, and that day they were added about 3,000 souls. So here, in Acts chapter 2, in the same chapter, you have a group of Jews coming. The first Jews coming, they receive this gift of tongues. A second group of Jews coming, it says they were baptized. And so, so they said, how do we get saved? They said, be baptized. They were baptized, and no tongues come. Or at least there's no report of tongues. Nothing. Now I turn to Acts chapter 8. Samaritans. In Acts chapter 8, verse 14. It says, Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. That's it. So, here, with the Samaritans, they believed the word, but they had not yet been baptized. Then they, they believed the word, then they had been baptized. Then, after baptism, there was the laying on of hands. And after the laying on of hands, they received the Holy Spirit. No reference to tongues. Nothing. Nothing. They didn't receive tongues. So you have a group receive tongues, you have a group that doesn't receive tongues. And now turn to Acts chapter 8, verse 38. Here's the Ethiopian eunuch. He is an Ethiopian. He's practicing Judaism. And now he gets saved. And it says in verse 38, And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. So, here, you don't see any reference to laying on of hands. You don't see any reference to tongues. Nothing. So which one are we going to follow? Which pattern? So now go to Acts chapter 10. Maybe we'll get some clarity here. Here's the Gentiles getting saved. The first group of Gentiles. Acts chapter 10 verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for those who have been baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we did. And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they asked him to stay for a few days. So before it was baptism, and then they were receiving tongues, now the Holy Spirit hits them, There was no laying on of hands. The Holy Spirit just hits them. And they start speaking in tongues. And Peter goes, whoa, we better get them baptized. Well, which is first, baptism or the Holy Spirit or tongues? Well, it depends which account you read. You want to build a theology out of this? Which one are you going to choose? But what happens is, believers will get a pattern. This is the way it's got to be. They say, which way? Which chapter? This was the first group of Gentiles to receive the, the gospel. And they receive the gift of tongues. There are Gentile conversions throughout the book of Acts after this. Again and again. Never, never, never a reference to tongues after that. Only on the first group. The first group of Jews got hit with it. Now the first group of, Gen- the first group of, of, of Gentiles are getting hit with it. But you never see it after this. So It doesn't bother me. People speak in tongues. I'm fine with that. You see, God choosing different ways here. Now turn to Acts chapter 19. There's another group. Acts chapter 19. 
reading from verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. So here you, you have tongues and prophesying. So is prophesying a part of a requirement as an indication for salvation? Well, it was manifest here. It was never manifest in the other portions. And here the sequence is different. Here the sequence, and and in fact, you can go to Israel today, you will see people who buy into the baptism of John but go no further. Yeah. But here it clearly says that that was insufficient. And you say, well, why don't you show them this verse and they'll say it's sufficient? Well, you know, because people dig in their heels and they have their ways and they have their traditions. And he says, but, um, and when he heard this, Paul then laid his hands on them, then the Holy Spirit came. So in this case, laying on of hands came first, then the Holy Spirit, then tongues, then prophesying. So you can't build a theology of tongues or no tongues based upon this portion in the book of Acts. In the epistles, we have clear instruction of what the Holy Spirit is. We have clear instruction of tongues and its usage, and its usage in in the church, and its usage in prayer. We have clear instruction on that. We don't have that instruction in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is an historical book. It is not a book uh, um, to give us theology. It is an, an historical book. This is what the Israelites did that got them in so much trouble. They took a portion from the book of Numbers and they said, let's apply it now in this time when the ark is already settled. And they got torn up. 30,000 people were lost and the ark was lost. And what happens is, now their faith is all busted up. Does God exist? Is He real? You see how dangerous it is to take up something that isn't really valid and to base our theology upon that because what happens when that idea comes breaking down? We want very much to be strong in faith but to that, for that faith to have content so that we're not shaken by these things. The Scriptures are true but they're very specific. I pray all the time for people. All the time for people because I don't know. God may intercede and heal them. But many of them die. And the reason is because I pray for a lot of people that are in the last stages of cancer and going to MD Anderson. And a lot of them don't make it. And some of them go into remission and they do just great for tens of years. But other people don't. But I pray. But my faith in Christ and His ability to heal is not based on this person or what's going to happen. Because I pray, I offer it up to God. But God's the one who gives life. He's the one who takes it away. But I intercede. I want your faith to remain strong. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. You are so good. Lord, I pray that our faith would be based upon your scriptures and upon what You have instructed us in the epistles to do. Father, that our faith would remain strong, but would have content. 
that we wouldn't be shaken, that we would realize that you live forever, that this word of God is true, that it's not a fake and it's not just something we follow to make us feel good, but it's true. Father, I pray for these young people that you would build them up strong in faith and in the knowledge of your word and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for your mercies and for your grace. In the name of Jesus, amen.